Go ahead and take your seat, and as you're doing that, you can grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 1. And I want to begin um, by reading the text for us. We're going to be looking at the remainder of chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 24. We're going to read all the way down through verse 32. You can follow along. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. As a kid, I I always wanted to know the consequences for my disobedience up front. I I wanted to be able to make an informed decision about what I was about to do and if I was willing to count the costs. Some of you uh, experience this probably on a regular basis in your home. The reality is, is that Paul is setting before us, he is detailing for us here in this section of God's Word, the consequences of human rebellion. We use this phrase around our church a lot. You guys are familiar with it. Many of you, I know, use it with your kids. Um, You choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And in effect, that's exactly what Paul is saying to us here in the Word of God. He's telling us here that if you choose to sin, you are in effect choosing certain consequences. And these consequences are at the hand of God Himself. That's what Paul says to us here in this passage. Here's what you're choosing. You're choosing the wrath of God, judgment from His hand. Last week, we looked at the beginning section of the wrath of God, and we answered the question, why? Why is God's wrath necessary We saw that man has suppressed God's truth and that man has subverted God's glory. Man has de-godded God. Man has kicked God off of his throne, kicked him to the side, and he has replaced God with himself or with lesser things in the created order. Man has refused to acknowledge God. 
Paul says it like this, man has refused to honor Him, to give glory to Him, or to give thanks to Him, to recognize Him as the source of all goodness and blessing in life, as the source of life itself. Humanity rejects this, rebels against this. We saw last week that sin actually demands God's wrath. It demands God's wrath. God cannot be God and tolerate sin, for that would compromise His very character, His holy nature, His own righteousness. But we also saw that all of humanity are sinners and therefore deserve God's wrath. Every one of us falls into this category, deserving God's wrath. But here's the question for us this morning. What exactly does God's wrath look like? How does God pour out His wrath? And I think many of us wrongly have this understanding that God's wrath is only a future event. It is that. There is a great culmination of wrath on the day of wrath, on a final day of judgment, but we can miss that God is actually pouring out His wrath in a present sense here and now, and it is that wrath in particular that Paul highlights for us this morning. And if we have ears to hear and eyes to see what the wrath of God looks like here and now, this can be, listen, this can be one of the most life-transforming doctrines in the Bible. It's intended to grab us. It's intended to shock us. It is intended to change us. And the key to understanding these questions is found here. And before we kind of dive into the outline and really unpack the meat of this text, I I wonder if you notice the dominant phrase that's used throughout this section. You could highlight it. It's used three times in particular, and that's this. We see it right in verse 24. God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. This repeated refrain is one of the most terrifying statements in all of Scripture. It is describing God's present wrath on humanity. It is being meted out in society at large. But how exactly are we to understand this phrase that God gave them up? I want you to notice that this phrase is qualified in verse 24, that He gives them up in the lust of their hearts, He says. In other words, there's a human component going on here. There is human responsibility. There is human sin that is present, that it is being chosen. That is to say that sinners were already, before God gave them up, they were already wholeheartedly immersed in their sin. So human responsibility is clear, but what we need to see here, what Paul highlights for us, is divine sovereignty. So in what sense does God give us over? Is this supposed to be a a passive giving over? In other words, is God simply letting us go? Is God refusing to restrain us any longer and simply letting go? Some have used this illustration of a rowboat, that all of us are sitting in in a rowboat, um, and God is at the back of the boat, and He's holding onto the back while the currents of the stream of sin try to pull us downstream. God just kind of holds us there, and, and is God like just letting us go? Letting the current of sin take us. 
There is certainly an element of that that's present here, but I think what we ought to see is there is more of an active nature to God's letting go, giving over, handing over in this passage. He doesn't simply let the boat go, in other words. He actually gives it a push into the current. It is an active process on God's part where He does this either for our reforming or our retribution or potentially both. The same word is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, and he speaks to the church. There he tells the church that there is a a sinning brother, somebody who's going through church discipline and is refusing to repent of their sin. They're refusing to turn back to Jesus. And here's Paul's command to the church, same word here, you are to deliver this man, you are to give him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's been stated like this, the punishment of sin, listen, listen, the punishment of sin is sin. It's like the child who's caught smoking a cigarette, who is then forced to sit and smoke the whole pack. In effect, what Paul is saying to us is, listen, God will hand us over to the desires of our hearts in an effort to make us sick of our sin or to suffer the consequences of our sin or both. See, where is this most visibly seen? Where do we see this? Paul tells us, he tells us we see this in society. And I want to look at three ways we see um, God's wrath displayed through society. Society displays God's wrath, first of all, through our disordered sexuality. In verse 24 and 25, he goes after a specific category of sin. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. This idea of impurity here certainly is pointing towards sexual impurity. It's a general statement about sexual immorality, evidencing a turning away from God, but also evidencing the very judgment of God. And verse 25 makes this incredibly important connection for us because they, listen, why did God do this? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped, here it is, and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is what we saw last week and Paul wants to drive this truth into our hearts. Listen, church, you need to take this phrase and you need to embed it in your hearts and minds. Here it is, immorality is the result of idolatry. Immorality is the result of idolatry. That means this, that even as a Christian, listen, your sin problem is first and foremost a worship problem. Your struggle with lust, your struggle with anger, your struggle with drunkenness, your struggle with envy, listen, it is first and foremost a worship disorder. Those are symptoms of a much deeper reality in your heart. And that's so helpful to know, because so often we can be walking around and simply trying to fix the symptoms rather than treating the actual issue. John Calvin talked about the reality of idolatry in the human heart, and he said some very helpful things. He said this, he said, all who forsake the word of God fall into idolatry. 
He said that every one of us is, from our mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. I love his phrase. He said this. He said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. We just keep churning them out. And that's exactly what Paul identifies here. The heart of our problem is worship. We have exchanged the truth about God. We've denied Him. We've turned away from Him. And instead, we've worshiped and served the created things. And I think verse 25 is helpful, both 24 and 25, in pointing out this principle. Listen, sin is present in the heart before it is manifest in the body. What we do in our behavior is simply a manifestation, an expression of sin that has already taken root in our hearts. Idolatry is everywhere represented in Scripture as the greatest insult the creature can offer the Creator. And what we see here is that sexual immorality and impurity is actually demonstrating, it is proving our idolatry. We know this from the Word of God, that sexual activity of any kind is reserved for marriage. God is the one who invented sex and sexuality. He is the one who invented marriage. He is the one who officiated the first marriage in the Bible. At the very beginning, God said there is to be one man and one woman who become one flesh. He made that relationship and that union pure and beautiful. And the Word of God tells us over and over that everything else is a perversion of what God has made pure. Our immorality is evidence of our idolatry, and it is evidence of God's judgment upon that idolatry. How many of us know the heartbreak and pain and damage of sexual sin? How many of us have personally experienced the damage that has been done to us by others or the damage that we've done to ourselves? Whether it's an adulterous relationship that has damaged your marriage and your family or an addiction to pornography that you think is hidden but is eating you from the inside out, is destroying your life. Inordinate affections bring extraordinary afflictions. If you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And remember what Paul is doing here is he is putting us all on trial. He is prosecuting all of humanity, and he's putting us all in the same place. He's telling us, listen, that that every one of us is guilty before God. Every single one of us, not one of us is off the hook. And he launches from this general category of sexual sin into a more specific form of sexual sin and sexual immorality. Look at what he says in verse 26. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's not just sexual immorality to which God has given them over. It is sexual inversion and sexual perversion. 
You see, why does Paul single out homosexuality? Why does he go after homosexuality like this? Is it, is it because it is a far worse sin than every other sin? No. No, that's, that's not the issue here. So why does Paul single it out? Here it is. It's actually built into the text. We see why Paul goes after homosexuality, because it is so obviously, it is so obviously, he says, unnatural. And therefore, it automatically underlines the extent to which sin disorders humanity. It is a visible, a powerfully visible display of how disordered and how distorted the human heart is. He he gives us an example of of something that is just patently built in. You can do biology, anatomy, and he says this is clear. And in a sense, he uses it like a mirror to hold up to all of humanity to show us, listen, that this is simply a reflection of a heart that is disordered. It should be as clear as us. That sin should be so clearly sinful to us, so much so that we look at our own idolatrous heart and realize how it has been flipped upside down. Let's be very clear, other sins are just as evil. But what Paul identifies for us is that other sins are are naturally evil. And God has emphasized the sin of inversion here to show us that inside the unbelieving human being is a far deeper dimension of a reversal of a nature that characterizes our sinful society. We are deeply disordered, he's saying, from the inside out. Now, Paul's words here are frequently distorted dismissed or defamed, and I understand um, the topic for this morning is not a politically correct topic. I understand that this is a very offensive subject for a lot of people, but I just want to make it very clear. We, we go through the Word of God verse by verse, and we don't skip the hard parts. We don't jump over the offensive issues. We deal with things, listen, hopefully with love and with grace, but we want to deal with things the way God says we're to deal with things. We need to understand things the way that God explains them and and tells us. We don't need to embrace what the world thinks of these things. We need to know what God says about these things. But oftentimes, even, listen, even some well-meaning Christians will dismiss this passage and they'll say, now there's no way, in in an effort to defend homosexuality and same-sex attraction or same-sex relationships, they they will try to to suggest that what Paul is saying here um, maybe is different. It only applied back then. This is kind of archaic, and, and certainly homosexuality wasn't as common in Paul's day, maybe. And some have even suggested that what Paul talks about here in terms of nature and going against nature is actually not a rebuke against homosexuality. It's a statement to all people that says, listen, God may have made you one way. Maybe that's um, gay or straight or heterosexual or homosexual. Whatever God has made you, you just got, you got to stay there. Don't deviate from the way God has made you. And let me just tell you that is so far from anything the Word of God teaches, it's ridiculous. All of these kind of ideas... They reject the plain meaning of the text. Homosexuality was actually rampant in Paul's day. It was rampant in the Roman Empire to which Paul is writing to the church in Rome, remember. Consider this for a moment. Fourteen of the first fifteen emperors practiced homosexuality. Homosexuality represented perhaps the greatest offense to Jewish sensibilities. 
as Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Rome looked around their society, here's what you need to understand. Listen, they would have seen homosexuality practiced at every turn. It would have been encouraged. It would have been promoted. It sounds much like our society today. In a very short period of time, in my lifetime, I have literally watched same-sex behavior and attraction progress from being publicly rejected to being publicly tolerated, to being publicly accepted, and to being publicly celebrated. In an incredibly, relative to all of human history, in an incredibly short period of time, we have seen this massive shift in our own culture. We are watching this unfold in our society all around us. It's intentionally being injected into elementary school curriculums. From daytime television to Disney, it's everywhere we look. Flags flown, bumper stickers plastered, parades held. Our society celebrates and promotes a sexual revolution and a sexual agenda that both deserves, listen, and displays God's wrath. For this sin demonstrates a complete subversion of God's divine design. And it demonstrates, again, a complete subversion of the greater design for humanity. Here's what it's pointing to. That we were created, we were designed by God to know and love Him. We were designed by our Creator to worship Him and give thanks to Him and give glory to Him. We were designed like that, and yet we have taken our designed order, our human nature, and we have completely flipped it upside down. And our societies claim that this is normal, it's natural, we're born this way, we're designed to be like this. But this, listen, it is contrary to the testimony of Scripture, and it fails to take into account the devastating effects of sin on the human heart and mind. It's interesting that what Paul does here is he he talks about both men and women, but the terms he uses here are actually um, very fascinating. He uses the terms for male and female. Uh, he doesn't use the term for man and woman. And by doing that, what he does is he roots us back in created order. Again, he's going all the way back to creation. He's wanting us to see that God is the authority, God is the designer, and God has made things a certain way. Paul does not allow for, by the way, a separation between sex and gender. He doesn't even allow for the common notion amongst some professing Christians that same-sex desire and attraction itself is not a sin. Only the behavior of sin, some people want to argue, but God actually argues differently. He says the desire itself, like the desire for any sin, is actually sinful. Any disordered desire for sin, any love of sin, any affection for sin, any passion for sin is sin itself. Because we were not designed to have passion for sin, we were designed to have passion for the glory and honor and fame of Jesus Christ. clear that Paul condemns not just the activity, but also the same-sex lusts. And in verse 27, he says this. He says that they are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
You see, what exactly does that mean? There have been a lot of suggestions over the years, a lot of confusion, I think. And the honest truth is, is we're not entirely sure, but if we follow the flow and the thought of Paul through this section of Scripture, here's, I think, what Paul is getting at. What is the condemnation? What is the judgment upon them? The penalty is not something in addition to same-sex sin, but rather being handed over to it entirely. So you say, what are you saying, Ian? I'm saying that the sin itself, like all other sins, listen, is deserving of God's wrath. But I'm also saying that the rampant acceptance and celebration of sexual perversion and inversion in our society is a clear and undeniable display of God's wrath. That we are watching in real time, right now, the escalating judgment of God as He hands society over as a punishment for failing and refusing to worship Him, the Creator. But he doesn't just leave it here with these sins. In case you are, again, inclined to think, well, maybe, maybe we should just be concerned about sexual sin, he, he, he doesn't leave us there. He presses into us, and he says, no, 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 don't be confused. I want you to see how disordered your heart is, but I want you to see it, secondly, in this, in the declining morality. In verse 28 through 31, we have the longest list of sin in the entire Bible. These kind of lists are common, especially throughout the New Testament. They're called vice lists. That's what a lot of people refer to them as. But here we see the longest list, and some people have tried to break it up into some groups. I think there's, there's likely three different groups of sin that he discusses here, but really he's just kind of slamming everything together. He's kind of got a group of four at the beginning, then a group of five, then a group of 12, but here he highlights, listen, 21 sins that are distinct in some ways, but there is massive overlap throughout this list. But in verse 28, again, there's a bit of a play on words here. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. Again, Paul, uh, in, the, in the original language, has a bit of a play on words here. He's saying this, an unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit. He, he said they, they, did, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to an unfit mind. In other words, they now have no discernment, no ability to tell right from wrong in one sense. They give themselves over to sin, and He, in turn, gives them over to their sin. He hands them over to their own desires. It's really important to see this. Listen, that God doesn't make anybody sin. God is never responsible for your sin. You can't blame God. You are the only one responsible for your sin. People always do exactly what they desire to do. The reason you sin is because, listen, you want to. The reason I sin is because I want, in the moment, that is what I want. That is what I desire And while we could go through this list and dissect each one of these sins, it's probably better to see them as a kind of a packaged whole. Paul wants the the size and the collective weight of this list of vices to be held together. It's not any one sin in particular that is the problem. It is the very essence of sin and the scope of sin that characterizes human rebellion in the city of man. 
But he begins in verse 29, and look at what he says. They were filled. Listen, this indicates the depths of the moral decline. They were filled to the brim, almost to the top, overflowing. What were they filled with? All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And then he begins the second list. Listen, they are full. This is wholesale. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips. This is the last list. They are gossips. He seems to be indicating their identity, their, their very character in nature. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Uh, this is crazy. Inventors of evil. Just keep coming up with new ways to do evil. They get bored of, of how sinful they are and the kind of sin they're practicing. So what else can we do? How, how far can we go? This is my favorite one, uh, disobedient to parents. Kids, listening. You say, why, why throw that in there? L- listen, the, the, even the places that are supposed to have the most affectionate and strength of relationships, the home, the family, even those are radically destroyed because of sin. And then he hits these, these four words, they, they all begin in the same way in the Greek, that's, which is why they sound very similar. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They could be translated like this, undiscerning, unfaithful, unloving, unmerciful. The declining morality is added to the disordered sexuality, listen, to complete Paul's sketch of the world outside of Christ. By the way, not all of those who are without Christ have done all of these things. But these are the kind of things that come most naturally to the unbelieving heart, the unregenerate heart. The tendency is for deeper and deeper decline. And remember, Paul has a singular goal in mind here. Remember, he's trying to prove us all guilty. He's trying to make sure that nobody can walk out of this room and say, well, that doesn't characterize me. We read a list like this, and here's what happens. Every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, sees ourselves on this list, don't we? The disintegration of moral standards is wholesale. Not one single area of of life and humanity is untouched by the devastating power of sin. Sin infects every person. It influences every institution. It impacts every single relationship. Things go from bad to worse. That's what he highlights for us here. And by the way, this is simply the story of humanity and the cycle of humanity. This has always been the way it is. There is this recursive pattern in the Word of God. Right after sin enters the picture, what do we see? Sin takes hold of everything. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, just three chapters after sin enters the picture, God's statement is that He wants to destroy the earth. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. And He wipes them all out in a flood, save Noah and his family. He hits the reset button. He says, let's try this again. Noah, we'll start again with you. And then it doesn't take very long. We get to Genesis chapter 18. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. And then he rains down fire and brimstone on the city. 
This is the pattern and trajectory here. God judges sin with sin. Listen, church, listen. But here's why this is so important to take note of here and now. Eventually, God judges sin with utter and complete destruction. And this is how we see human history culminate in the book of Revelation. You see, but surely our society that knows this would repent. They would turn to God if, if they knew this. But instead, society displays God's wrath finally through defiant depravity. Defiant depravity. Look at verse 32. This is, this is staggering. That though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is so staggering. Man is, is not innocent, nor is man ignorant. According to the Word of God, man is willfully defiant. They not only know it, listen, they don't not only know God as we saw last week through creation, but here we see that they know through their conscience that they are going to give an account to this God. They know that this God is a moral being. He is a pure and holy and perfect being, and they know their actions violate the very law that is embedded in their heart. Deep down, every human being knows there is a God, knows that they will give an account. But seeing the warning lights flashing on the dashboard, humanity continues to barrel down the road toward the cliff of ultimate and final destruction. And it's not enough to simply do this on our own. It's not enough to just glory in our own shame. We actually give approval of the sin of others. We cheer them on in their sin. We coach them forward. We help them move along the path of destruction. Sin is evil in and of itself, but we see truly defiant depravity in the approval of the sin of others. In order to justify the sin in our own life, we need to both justify and affirm the sins of others, don't we? John Murray writes this, he says, to put it bluntly, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in doing of those things we know have their issue in damnation. He says, we hate others and render therefore to them the approval of what we know merits damnation. See, how is this possible? How is this possible that, that they know they deserve to die? By the way, that, that's not talking necessarily about physical death. That's talking about spiritual death. That's talking about the spiritual account and judgment that they know they deserve, which is why people are oftentimes unexplainably terrified of death. Just how is it possible that they know they deserve to die, that they know they deserve eternal damnation, and they don't stop sinning? Don't you think that? You're like, this is crazy. But is it really that difficult to understand? Listen, church, loved ones, listen, listen. If we know, if we know that our sin put Jesus on the cross, why don't we stop sinning? I'll tell you why. Because sin is stupid. And this is the mark of humanity. We have forsaken God. We have stupidly chosen to de-God God and to elevate ourselves and the rest of creation above the one who created it all. 
above the one who deserves all honor, all worship, and glory. In fact, in the end, this is staggering. If you ever read through the book of Revelation, it's, it's a staggering reality. The judgment of God is increasing upon humanity. Society is just collapsing. God's wrath being unleashed upon the earth. And you'd think at any moment as they recognize that this is the wrath of God, they would say, God, forgive me. But instead, you want to know what they do? They hide themselves in the rocks and they shake their fist at God. They say, God, how dare you? They hardened their hearts. They would rather have rocks cave in on them than acknowledge that they are wrong and need a Savior. They refuse to come to the light. And we know what the Word of God says, that people do not come to the light because they love the darkness. People don't want forgiveness. They want to be let off of the consequences of their sin so that they can enjoy the depravity of their sin. They want the consequences and the conviction of sin removed so that they can go on and enjoy the sin. They want to have their cake and eat it too, but the Bible says, listen, you can't have it both ways. And this is a profound rebuke against not only our culture, our society, it is a profound, listen, it is a profound rebuke against our churches and against contemporary Christianity. It's amazing that we can recognize that the sins of society display God's wrath, and yet we can still willingly choose to live in those same sins. The question we need to ask ourselves if you're a follower of Christ this morning is this, have I made myself a friend with the world? How many of us are entertained by these very sins on this list on a regular basis, in movies, in television, in music? How many of us trivialize these things by normalizing them in our lives, in every part of our lives? The truth is that we are too comfortable with the presence of sin around us because we are too comfortable with the presence of sin within us. And we minimize our sin by comparing it to others. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, way to go. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I haven't done what they've done. All sin is a perversion of what God says is normal and right. Immorality is the result of idolatry, and that is the foundational sin of humanity. We address our immorality only, listen, by addressing our idolatry. We don't clean ourselves up first. We don't try and fix ourselves first. We don't try to forgive ourselves. That's not the issue at stake here. We bow the knee in total submission and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins and we run to Him for forgiveness and grace. We recognize the grievous exchange that we all have made. We have chosen to worship the creation instead of the Creator. And we run to the cross of Jesus Christ.